agility, which is what Scrum is all about, was burnt into muscle memory, not only by the flying, but, you know, being hammered by the leadership in the, uh, in the base at the command level as well. It was built into muscle memory because it was literally life or death. Absolutely. There yeah. People die every day. So uh, you could have no nonsense. You know, pe- people didn't put up with the nonsense. Hey, Zach here from Boston Speaks Up. That is the voice of Dr. Jeff Sutherland. He is one of the creators of Scrum, and he's one of the founders of Scrum Inc. He's actually the founder and chairman of Scrum Inc. And if you're not familiar with Scrum, that is the framework for enabling business agility at scale across organizations all around the world. We're talking upwards of 90% of products around the globe that are going to market. It's happening through the Scrum framework. So Dr. Sutherland, he's on a real mission to sort of open source that Scrum framework and make sure everyone have access to it. Um, he's a difficult person to get time with because he is a he's a hired gun consultant. He is on, he's being pulled into really um, some of the biggest challenges facing the biggest organizations in the world from the country of Japan, um, to the, uh, British Royal Navy, to John Deere, all these organizations have, uh, continued to turn to Dr. Sutherland, uh, for help sort of navigating digital transformation, embracing agility and really implementing the scrum framework to build alignment, um, within teams and, and, and sort of across an organization and just really increase productivity and also increase happiness. And one of the things I really find uh, in, interesting about uh, Dr. Sutherland is just how much he is focused on sort of reducing stress and increasing energy for people and how the Scrum framework can be a tool for that. So there is so much we unpack in this episode. Dr. Sutherland is not someone you easily can get time with. I am super grateful he took the time with me. And I'm really looking forward to y'all getting the chance to get inside this beautifully brilliant brain. Enjoy. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I am here with Dr. Jeff Sutherland of Scrum Inc. How are you, Jeff? Doing great. Glad to be here today. It's it's lovely to have you here. I had the good fortune of spending some time um, in your home. Thanks for welcoming me into your home a few days ago, um, doing some work together, um, Value Creation Labs and Scrum Inc., which um, allowed us to get into a flow. And so I think listeners today will, uh, will hopefully get to appreciate some of the, the flow between the two of us. And we'll talk about flow. You know, at some point, right. I'm sure we'll talk about the importance of, uh, you know, finding flow and, and, and keeping energy up and keeping stress down. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. For, for listeners, I, I'd love for you to share just sort of like a bit of an overview of your present day reality and what you're up to at Scrum Inc. Yeah, well, Scrum Inc., uh is a evolution of Scrum, which began formally in 1993 and has become the dominant way of delivering products to market. Most people don't realize it, but when you pick up that iPhone and you get an update, usually it's some Scrum team 
that just updated that. And so the rapid iteration, uh, and that has now affected uh, hardware because hardware is iterating more rapidly. And that is now affecting oil companies and financial institutions. 88% of the people who say they're doing something agile, they're doing scrum. So by 2006, uh, Scrum was the market leader with about 80% market share for ways of building product. And uh, I wanted, it, it was predominantly in software. And in 2006, I formed Scrum Inc. to not only help the software companies, but move Scrum out into industry, into finance, into aerospace, into uh, manufacturing. Uh, and so Scrum Inc. today does training all over the world. Uh, we actually do consulting and agile transformations all over the world. We work with big organizations like the British Navy is totally going Scrum. Um, and it keeps us really busy. We also have kind of an open source community of scrumming trainers all over the world, many hundreds of people in almost every country in the world. And so I'm, I'm talking to them every day. I'm helping them out with their training and so forth. So scrumming is really busy. Uh, most of my time though, right now is a scrum healthcare startup. Because one of the things that we need really need to change in the United States is both healthcare and education. And since I have about 40 years of experience in healthcare, uh, my goal is to help engineer a total transformation of the way healthcare is done in the United States. Very cool. So I want to, and we'll get into that a little bit. Actually, some of your your background because I think your your resume speaks for itself. And as you start to allude to, like as you start, as we've talked in recent weeks um, and months, the types of you know folks you've worked with, whether it's the British Royal Navy or John Deere or the country of Japan, um, <laughs> we're talking about the biggest quote unquote organizations entities yeah. in the world. Um, that are looking to appropriately implement Scrum and and really embrace agility, um, they turn they turn to Scrum Inc. And so I'm, I want to unpack that. And I think in order to sort of unpack that, it's it's interesting and worthwhile to explore like some of your background and let's go all the way back. Like yeah, gra- graduate of of West Point. Um, right. Let's talk about what was happening in the world at that time, and and sort of uh, your, your your service in Vietnam, and and just the some of the some of the the things that you experienced, and the and sort of the mentors and, and sort of leaders you were around that started to shape your perspective on sort of like sort of like global um, you know global global trends and and right. and reaching yeah and, and just i'd love i'd love for you to share with folks like that that background and we can kind of start to graduate towards present day well going all the way back to west point of course west point is probably the best leadership training organization in the world they've trained many of the world's greatest leaders i li- i lived in the room 
that General Eisenhower lived in when he was a cadet. So that's the kind of environment it is. Wow. It had a plaque on the on the fireplace that said General Eisenhower slept here. And I would look at that every night as I went to bed. I'd, I'd think about that, you know. And so you're immersed in this uh, tradition. Now, during the time I was there, that's when the Vietnam War was starting up. Uh, President Kennedy gave a talk there, and then the next year he was killed. Uh, General MacArthur, probably a most famous uh, military leader, and also the cadet that had the highest academic rating as a cadet, uh, gave his last speech at West Point in the mess hall, 3,000 cadets after dinner, all 3,000 cadets and all the military office, officers were in tears after his talk about duty, honor, country. And that speech today has to be memorized by every single cadet in the first month or two when they arrive at the Air Force Academy. So, so a speech you saw live, it now needs to be memorized yeah, by everyone yeah. for, hi- for history. Absolutely. So wow. you're immersed in this uh, tradition, a uh, tradition of leadership, a tradition of uh, visionaries, uh, you know, protecting the country. And when I uh, was coming to the end of my time, uh, when I was there, you know, the Air Force Academy the Air Force used to be part of the Army. It was the Army Air Corps. Then they started the Air Force Academy. So in the Army Air Corps, all the Army officers that were trained in the military academy were trained at West Point, right? So then when the Air Force Academy started delivering officers, they cut the number of people that could come from West Point to 10%. So during my last year, the Air Force was recruiting there. And and I said to them, you know, well, I'm a, I like fast cars. <laughs> I like fast <laughs> airplanes. You send me to fighter training and I will go into the Air Force. Uh, so they agreed to do that. And I wound up in the Air Force. So uh, in order to fly a fighter aircraft, you have to graduate at the top of your pilot training class, which I managed to do. And I got into flying F-4 Phantom aircraft, a great, great aircraft. Uh, That led me to uh, flying with a, the, the, the general who was the four-star general, the commander of the tactile air command. And I spent a day flying with him and skiing with him. Uh, and given our conversation, uh, we skied on Saturday and Monday. There were orders for me to go to Vietnam <laughs> and be, a, be an aircraft commander, along with 12 other academy graduates like myself. So because of our conversation, he, he decided that, hey, we need these guys over there. And so I, I was on a tour to fly a hundred missions over North Vietnam. And in, in, in that time frame, when I arrived, we were replacing F-101 aircraft 
a year earlier, 50 aircraft arrived at Udon, Thailand, where I was coming in. And one year later, <laughs> 45 of them were shot down and missing. Jeez. And the remaining five had so many bullet holes, they were not flyable. I came in in the F-4 with another group of 50 aircraft to replace. <laughs> so this is this was the most so you came in. Uh, let me do the math real quick. So you came in, 90% of the F-101s were gone. <laughs> 90, and the, yeah, yeah, 90%, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, 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 90%, right? 45 out of 50. And then the other 10%, the remaining five, had so many bullet holes, they couldn't even be used anymore. So how'd the next 50 fare? <laughs> well, the F-4 was a more reliable aircraft. And so we were, we were losing a couple of them a month. So at the end of a year, we would lose 25 of the aircraft. Um, much better than the F-101. But that meant that half Jeez. of the people I flew with got shot down. Yeah, It was and the most uh, hazardous air mission in the history of aerial warfare. And we always said, you know, that mission is silly to put a person in a plane to do that mission. And that mission now is only done by drones. Drones, <laughs> right. I, did, yeah, I saw where you were going there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That job is gone, fortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had the benefit, you know, connecting to our back discussion, uh, like who are the mentors? Yeah. The base, the base commander at Udorn was the last surviving World War I ace. <sighs> and for some reason, he had me run his command post at night and I would and be his wingman if he was flying missions. So... Again, I, I was able to work with and experience some of the leading thinkers. And one thing that really impressed me about him, he had a he had a sign, you know, when you go in to fly, you have to go into the quartermaster area, get your helmet and your parachute and stuff. There's a huge sign in there. It said, we fly and fight and never forget it. And that meant if I walked up to the counter and I got any static from somebody behind that counter, you could call him and he would be there within the hour cleaning up the mess. So an absolute intolerance of any bureaucratic uh, nonsense. And that... Uh, uh, aggressive kind of an immediate response organizationally combined with the flying when, when we flew over North Vietnam because it was so heavily defended you had to assume you were shot at every second and so my strategy was as soon as I crossed the border I flew as if I was being shot at every second. So I had to be in, a, in an eva evasive maneuver every second. So no matter what they shot at me, I wasn't doing any different. I was already evading the missiles, evading the bullet. You were in a state of evasion. 100% of the time, I was, ev yeah. I was evading the bullet. Yeah. And I trained a lot of other people to do that. And most of the people, particularly the ones that I trained that got shot down, were not in that evasive maneuver. 
you know, they would come in, they'd try to fly just straight and level to try to make sure they hit the target. And that, that would get them killed. Okay. So agility, which is what scrum is all about, was burnt into muscle memory, not only by the flying, but, you know, being hammered by the leadership in the, uh, in the base at the command level as well. It was built into muscle memory because it was literally life or death. Absolutely. There yeah. People die every day. So uh, you could have no nonsense. You know, pe- people didn't put up with the nonsense. Interesting. So what was sort of your, uh, what was your outlook on the world? Um, as you, well, one of the things, yeah. <laughs> one of the things I learned, I apologize yeah. to my dog here. Um, do, 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 dogs can make appearances. I'll, I'll, um, I'll kind of talk over it a little, like, cause my, my, um, my podcast producer is my brother-in-law and, um, yeah. he's probably gonna, he'll, he can probably cut out a little bit of a section if like the dog's getting excited. Someone's probably delivering mail. If it's my house, yeah, by the way, right. at some point yeah. it could be it's my a, dog upstairs. It's a delivery yeah. guy out there. So maybe you don't even, don't even worry about it. I'm going to kind of, <laughs> but kind of getting back to what, where I was going and, and to let you go is sort of, I'm curious your outlook on life as you were, you know, coming back from serving the air force over in Vietnam what what were the what were your prospects okay. right we it, well, yeah and, and sort of yeah you know this was probably my first introduction to what became scrum because every day i was flying out over north vietnam and i i flew a lot of missions at night we had a mission a night mission at three or four in the morning low level over hanoi i flew a lot of those missions and so I saw everything that was going on, all the troop movements. And what was going on was being reported in the English Thai press accurately. I read what was reported in the United States and talk about fake news. It was 100% fake news. What was the difference? The whole attitude of what we were doing over there, how it was working. Uh, hmm. Let me give you an example. Just before the Tet Offensive, uh, the North Vietnamese were running down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, had trucks day and night. And it got so bad, they were actually running with the headlights at night, even though we were bombing the hell out of them. And they were able to, any any road that was blown up by the next day, they had fixed it, and the trucks were running. And they sent a new uh, uh, intelligence officer into our group, and he said, hey, you know, you guys in reconnaissance go out and you get the po- photos. Then we bring back these photos and then they get sent to the Philippines and then the best photos are sent to the president's desks. And then the fighters that are actually fighting and dying, they're using photos that are six months old. Think about that. Why don't we take your photos in real time and then for, for any fighters that are coming back that have any weapons left, 
They have to drop them in the jungle anyway before they land. Let's take your photo in real time and say, hey, on your way back to the base, hit this target that we just saw. In two days, we stopped the traffic on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, mm -hmm. bumper to bumper, for the first time in the history of the war. This was on a Monday because we had zeroed in on a, on a cave running through a mountain and we were able to completely block it with these spare bombs. On Friday, the intelligence officer was relieved of his command. We stopped bombing that site and the Ho Chi Minh Trail, bumper to bumper, lights on at night, 10 offensive, and we lose the war in Vietnam. So this gives you the picture that reality is not what people think it is. And because of that gap, really bad things happen. Hmm. Now, let's fast forward to Scrum because Scrum is based in Lean and in the Toyota Way. And the inventor of the Toyota Way, Taiichi Ono, has a great book on workflow. And in the first chapter, he's, he's talking to his project leaders. And he says, you know, what I've discovered is about half of what people think is wrong. And so your job as a project leader is to come in every day and figure out what you're thinking is wrong. And he says, and then you need to confess to the people you are wrong and change things. And then they will follow you. It's a leadership thing that we learned at West Point. And he says, now, the other thing you need to know is that 50% of what the people think is right. <laughs> and when you find out they're right, you tell them how great they are, and then they will follow you everywhere. So dealing with anything, uh, and particularly dealing with companies, projects, is about cutting through all the noise that is fake and getting to the root of what is actually going to work. Uh, now, let me give you an example of that. Man. So we go into Toyota with Scrum. We prioritize everything. We take a top priority project. It had 200 people on it for five years, delivered nothing. One of the most important projects in Toyota USA for all the dealers to be able to know how much they're going to get paid in commissions on the cars they sell. We cut the staff from 200 to 20. We delivered the complete product in six months. So now think about this, because we're going to come back to this later. Mm -hmm. 200 people delivering nothing for five years 
compared to 20 people delivering everything in six months. How much faster is that? Infinitely, because the first group got nothing done. Infinitely (laughs) faster, because the amount of waste is infinite. And and that is in one of the best companies on the planet. Right. Toyota is better than the average company. Right. So that means wherever you are watching this, (laughs) it's probably worse. Okay. So, you know, Vietnam was the beginning of me getting clear about what people are saying. Most of it's wrong. We have to go to the root cause which is what Toyota does. Let's go to the root cause of why we're having a problem. And then let's change the dynamic so we get a completely different result. And that is why Scrum is now in 88% of the companies that are trying to deliver more stuff faster, right? Right. Because it actually works. It cuts through. It's a, it has that attitude that we had in the military. We have to cut through the resistance and get to the meat. Right. And I don't want to fast forward too much. Like you can kind of hit on things that got up like between Vietnam and the you know, cancer research yeah. all, all the way up and yeah. before 1993. But in 1993, when you did, you, did you imagine Scrum having that? 88% kind of market share, like impact on the well, world. Yeah. Okay, so the first prototype of Scrum actually came, it actually relates back to the cancer research. I mm-hmm. had about $30 million in National Cancer Institute grant money uh, to do cancer research. And my, my major research my PhD thesis was based on was modeling the human cell. And I needed a supercomputer. And actually, I, the first program I ran, ran on the biggest computer in the university system, and it used a third of my department's budget for the year. Oh, wow. <laughs> they told me I could never run that program again. <laughs> so I had to figure out, we actually started building computers and eventually acquired, acquired uh, nonstop computers that had the architecture that could support my research right? so that I could actually run it. And what school were you at? This was at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Okay. So from that, my minor was in radiology. So I became a... a professor of radiology. So, and that department was led by one of the leading radiation physicists in the 20th century, a guy named William Hendy. (laughs) And so we worked together for, you know, more than, more than 10 years, very closely. And My background was, even before I got to the medical school, I was at the Air Force Academy. I was trained in mathematics at the at Stanford University. So my background is mathematics and physics. Mm-hmm. But then you put this layer of military stuff on that, right? 
Right. And, and a, and a weave through the, in, in education and helping yeah. share that knowledge with people, right. which is obviously a big part of Scrum Inc. Right. Yeah. So in 1983, I was on a national grant program for all of cancer centers and president Reagan cut back healthcare significantly and he completely wiped out the national cancer Institute program. And my wow. grant went away with it. So was that well publicized at the time? I think it's all, you know, yeah. it's all in yeah. the press. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, actually the, at the, uh, at the FDA, they said during that time, the, the uh, public health system in the United States was gutted. Mm. We used to have good public health in the United States, but it ended during that time. Mm. Uh, so I was looking for new grants. Um, I didn't have it. I could have, my department chairman said, no problem, Jeff, we got plenty of stuff for you to do. But at that time, a large banking company came by and they said, Jeff, you and your team are the experts on the leading edge technologies we're using at the bank. We'd like you to come and be our vice president for advanced systems. And and we'll double your salary. And if that's not enough, then ask us for more. <laughs> so I, I discussed it with my wife. And of course we had been, I had they been a like, poor graduate us- student and a, a junior professor. <laughs> you know what I like about it? They were like, uh, make yourself an offer. You wouldn't refuse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so we decided, okay, go to the bank. So I wind up in the bank and they're running, they're running 150 banks all over North America with these big data centers in, in Seattle, down in San Diego, in uh, Kansas City, uh, in Denver, and so forth. And I'm responsible for all these systems. And they have hundreds of programmers writing software, and all their projects are late. Hmm. And I look at it, and I, I can't believe it. They're using this traditional project management system where when anything goes wrong, you have more managers, more reports, and more meetings. <laughs> and that makes it slower and slower and slower. It stagnates. I said, yeah. I, I went into the CEO's office. I said, Ron, have you noticed all your projects are late? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, every morning five of the CEOs of those banks call me up and they scream at me. (laughs) And I said, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Yeah. And he said, okay, what should I do? I said, we need a completely different uh, model, but we can't do the whole bank bank at once. Let's take one business unit, the business unit that's losing the most money. Let's take Mm -hmm. that one. It turned out to be the automated tele-units, the cash machines in 150 banks all across North America. It was, its revenue was 30% less than its expenses. So it was a big uh, cash burn. I said, give me that and I will create a set of small teams and uh, you know, like five people 
and we will run short one-week sprints, and we will have a person with a backlog that's prioritized right come in at the beginning of the week, and at the end, we'll deploy it to 150 banks every week. I'll show you how to do that. This is all based on complex adaptive systems theory, which is fundamental to biology, physics, mathematics. And within six months, it was the most profitable unit in the bank. Nice. Okay, so this had a lot, a lot, a lot maybe even most of the pieces of Scrum in it. Mm. I have a couple thoughts actually on that. I'm just relating it to present day and, and some of my understanding of Scrum right now. And I think, so in that instance, I imagine then you went and you had tackled the the most challenged, least profitable business unit. You implemented Scrum and you achieved great success. And then my I, what I would presume is that you then subsequently went and that was implemented in other business units. Yeah. Is that not an example where, you know, one of the things we'll talk about a little later more, like Scrum continues to evolve and adapt to all the different learning modalities that need to be out there. And the the on-demand Scrum Quick Start program um, sort of course offering that with all the now years and decades and decades of experience, y'all have learned how to create that kind of like enable self-paced learning for adult learners. Right. Scrum quick, quick start to me seems like a really prudent on-demand tool to then say, Hey, everyone else at the bank. So now I'm back. Yeah. Now I'm back in time. Imagine if Scrum's quick, quick start from today was there then. All yeah, right. Yeah. Everyone else. Scrum quick start. Absolutely. Get up, get up to speed. I, because I, guess yeah. what? We're about to transform the whole work. <laughs> yes. I was working on Crumb's uh, cal- curriculum for that just before we came on. And so I'm, oh, cool. I'm writing down, you know, I'm trying to put it simple, clear, short, so that people can do what we're talking about in this podcast without having right. to go through all the background. But the background right. is really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so when I looked at the bank, I looked at the bank just like the Vietnamese War. Yep. We lost the Vietnamese War because we were running it wrong. How yep. were we running it wrong? We were sending photos to Washington, and the photos didn't get back until six months later. And the targets are being directed out of Washington, and they're hitting the wrong targets. So I go look at the bank. We got the same thing going on. The project war is be running out of the boardroom. They have no idea what the hell is going on. They're uh, they're trying to hit the wrong target, and they're losing every project. You see how this yeah. military thinking can translate directly into a competitive environment in business. And so a lot of times people ask me, you know, well, Jeff, how, how could you do something so radical? I think you even asked me in this, you know, how did you deal with the pushback? Yep. The resistance. When you're trained, when 50% of the people are dying around you and you're trained to cut through the nonsense you don't get confused by the pushback from people who have no idea 
what they're doing and they're losing money. They're losing projects every day. They're losing people who quit because they're under pressure. The job sucks. The company can't deliver. And so I don't listen to the nonsense. I go right to the core of it. How much money are you losing? How late are your projects? How much does your life suck? And then I asked them, do you want to do anything on that about that? Because if you don't, I'm out of here. I'm not going to waste my time with you. If you want to do something, we are going to go after it. I love that. So let's talk about going after it in 1993. Yeah. What was it? Okay. What so was happening in the world? So 1993. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. in multiple companies, I'm kind of tuning up the scrum thing. Yeah. But then in 1993, the CEO of a company called Easel says, Jeff, we are the leading provider of this type of software people are using to build websites. Mm-hmm. And we're getting a lot more competition. We need to leapfrog the competition. We need to buy, or we already bought a German company with the latest technology. And we need somebody to lead the innovation that's going to turn that into our next product. And he said, we've interviewed dozens of senior technical people. And in fact, we've even hired one to run our development, but we have no one <laughs> that has repeatedly innovated and brought tuned products to market. Will you, I was president of another company. So will you come in and do that? <laughs> we'll give you the best people. Whatever you need, we'll give you. Just You just tell us because our company's survival depends on it. So, this is perfect, right? This is my kind of job. Mm -hmm. We've got a real problem. It needs real change, and people are ready to change. Yeah. So I come into Easel, and the first thing we need to figure out is what do people really need? And it turns out that our customers, which are big customers like Ford Motor Company and uh, the big banks on Wall Street and um, uh, – large vendors and they wanted a tool that would enable them to visualize what they want and then automatically create the website, the product. And so how to go from mind to product. And so that was a different tool than anything that had ever been built but we had technologies emerging at the time that would enable that. So we started building the tool, which I'll just say today as a, an aside, I was recently in a meeting of senior executives and one of them said, I used that tool in 1994 and I'm still using it today. It was one of the five best development tools that has ever been created. Wow. And it is still successful today. 30 years later, it is still That's rare. one of the five best tools. That's rare. And it, it's because 
of that first scrum team that we built. Because when we, we created, we started creating that tool. Uh, one of the first things we were learned is we didn't have the right people on the team. We actually had to completely change the team around to get the right talent on the team. And then we said, you know, it's not just the tool that our customers need, that they need the process, the way of building that enables them to maximize the capability of the tool. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, we need to do an innovation and a product around a framework for building new stuff. And mm-hmm. we're going to have to do the same research we did on tooling. And it's going to require at least a thousand research papers. We're going to have to study them every day. So I said, here's the filing cabinet. When we've got a thousand papers in there that we've studied, we know we're, we're maybe where we need to be before we can actually say anything that made sense. Uh, off we went. And anytime anyone got a good paper, we would gather at the end of the day and read it and discuss it immediately all together as a team. Mm. And fortunately on about the 300th paper, we didn't have to wait to a thousand. We read this paper by professor Takeuchi Nanaka, two Japanese guys in the Harvard business review called the new, new product development game. And in there, they talked about the best teams in the world. And they said they reminded them, of rugby teams. Hmm. And so they they said, we're going to call the best process in the world Scrum project management after the scrummage formation in rugby. Because that's what it looks like. <laughs> and we, we discussed that paper where we decided, hey, we should call what we're doing Scrum because it really describes what we're doing and that paper we can give to the senior management at Ford Motor Company and they will believe it because this is the Harvard Business Review. These are two of the most senior professors in the world. So that's where you, the word scrum comes from. That's great. You just made my production coordinator very happy. You got to meet him the other day, Ryan yeah. Hurley. He's a big, yeah. he still plays rugby now. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love that. Um, so let me, let yeah. me just finish this because yeah. you, you yeah, asked me going. about my mentors. Another very yeah, important yeah. mentor was then was pulled in a guy named Capers Jones. He has written more books on productivity than anybody on the planet. And he has more, he had more data. He's retired now, but he had more data than anybody in the planet on projects. And I brought his people into my company and I said, I want you to measure what we're doing with your technology. And it needs to be 10 times better than current project management systems because we're delivering a new product to market and innovative products, they have to be 10 times better. You have to be 10 times better. They, they need to cost 10, 90% less. They need to be uh, produce much higher quality. People they need to have more fun. We need to benchmark that with the best technology in the world for benchmarking projects until we get that. Then we will release it to the market. Mm. So you're asking me, did I think Scrum was going to work like it has? 
I knew 100% that it was going to work. It was a killer app created by the best product technology tools in the business by the leading mentor in that space. Okay. So there was no doubt whether it would work. But great innovations don't work unless you have marketing. And you get good adoption. Yeah. You get adoption. So what what happened? Like how it, we were talking like pre, pre-podcast in the questionnaire, you mentioned like the Swedes told you 2007, like Scrum had won Agile, like the Agile game was over. Like like Scrum, Scrum set the bar and that was it. Like how how did that adoption take place and... And was it true? Did it come down to marketing? It was the best marketing, just the word of mouth from people, from big organizations that were like, this transformed our, our business. There were probably two major pieces of that. One in 1995, easel was acquired by another company, a larger company. And I decided that, you know, the scrum invention was so, so cool I needed to get it out of the company into the industry. Mm-hmm. You need to I open source it. Yeah, I needed to open source yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I figured I could do it because, you know, the new company, they didn't know that much about it. About it. We, hadn't, we hadn't patented it or anything. So, And you hadn't, like, productized it within the company. Yeah. And yeah. people didn't view, view processes like something As that a product, you product yeah. and you yeah. make secret and all that. Right, right. So I called up an old friend, Ken Schwaber. He had worked with me previously in some of the banking business on traditional project management. And he was running a project management company. And I said, Ken, I want you to come in and see this, the scrum team because this really works. <laughs> and what you're selling doesn't work. We know that. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll come I'll come by. We talked. He decided to stay two weeks in the company with the team. At the end of the two weeks, he said, Jeff, it actually works. I agree. So I said, why don't you sell this and not sell that traditional project management stuff with the Gantt charts? Mm -hmm. And so he said, okay, well, what are the parameters around that? I said, it needs to be open source. Um, we need to start writing the first paper on it. You're working with industry all the time, talking to vendors on product software, project management. You need to market this to the industry. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be free. So he became kind of like the chief, the chief marketing. He was like chiefly responsible for marketing. Ken was like the yeah. Steve Jobs of Scrum, right? He just yeah. Yeah. sold the hell out of it. Now, nice. It needed more than him, though. So what yeah, happened? Tell me was, more, Wozniak. What the more was <laughs> in two thousand one, we had the Agile Manifesto meeting, right? With seventeen people that were concerned about these. Uh, new ways of working. And we got together and we wrote an agile manifesto based on what we were doing. 
there were only two pro, pro, there were only two widely deployed uh, uh, project frameworks at that time: Scrum and Extreme Programming, and they were designed to work together. If you're doing mm-hmm. software, you need the extreme programming inside the Scrum. Mm-hmm. So the first Scrum team had done all that, and but extreme programming is for a team and for software, whereas Scrum is a framework for building anything. It has nothing to do specifically with software, and it it was designed to run with many teams you know we have companies with thousands of scrum teams and and it also turns out that it was easily adopted in any country in the world which surprised me that it just started getting picked up everywhere and the developers liked it a lot better and so in the united states particularly they would just start doing it under the radar, we mm-hmm. called it Gorilla Scrum. And then the American managers, sometimes they start to stomp it out and the developer would, would quit and they'd go work someplace else. So mm-hmm. American managers started finding out they couldn't hire good people unless they did Scrum. So Unless they were committed that's to what Scrum. Cracked through, that's what cracked through the management. Management has always tried to block Scrum. They're still trying mm-hmm. today. But because it works, <laughs> yeah. the uh, the people want it. You know, it gives power back to the people. It gives decision making. It gives agency back to the people to do the right thing, do what needs to be done, and to have a conversation about the management that is uh, more uh, on an equal basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know you want to do that, but that's not going to work. We need to do it this way. Mm. And the management has to listen or they get a traditional project failure, right? So Scrum has opened up. It's made an organization more democratic Mm -hmm. where the people really have a voice. And we've used it in a way that actually makes the organization more successful. So – yeah, at the end, it's at the end of the day, the managers get yeah. more bonus. So now, well, yeah, a lot of them will it's go em- along with it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's empowering. It gets more out of each about individuals and teams. So it's yeah. net, you know, it's individual and 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 net um, team based productivity enhancements. Right. I'm curious, like at the point where where that, so you got you got your your the marketing and sort of the so it's sort of like that's top down like marketing and awareness you know Ken helped with that bottom up though like developers like they were they were choosing and beginning to you know it was beginning to reveal itself that developers wanted to work at companies that were committed to scrum so I'm curious like and you had at this point you had been around the globe you had been in silicon valley you had been in colorado I'm kind of curious, um, and I'm also curious what what year, initial years, you were in Cambridge Innovation Center because I spent like the very end of the 2000s. I I found myself at one Broadway in Cambridge Innovation Center, so I'm very familiar yeah. with the five six hundred startups in that building. It was a very unique spot for for Scrum to sort of embed itself as kind of like a USHQ. But I'm just sort of curious about that the well, evolution my, and my, is there. My story there is another series of mentors because. <laughs> While I was at the university, 
I, one of the grants I applied for was a Kellogg National Fellowship. And, okay. And this is a program for leadership development. The only thing that's, that I know that's similar is the White House Fellows Program. Hmm. And I got that grant and then the bank hired me. <laughs> and I walked, I walked into the bank with the, with the approved grant application. <laughs> I gave it to my boss and I said, what should I do with this? My boss was a CWP. He gave it to the CEO. The CEO go back the next day. He said, Jeff, we're going to fund this grant. It required me to be a third of my time with a Kellogg Foundation. Okay. I said, well, I'll give up a third of my salary. He said, no, we're going to pay you a whole salary. Hmm. You're going to spend a third of your time with the Kellogg Foundation. And you can use any money on the grant any way you want. Nice. I said, why are you doing this? He says, I just talked to the chancellor of the university. He convinced me I'm going to get more money back out of this than almost anything I've done. <laughs> nice. Sure yeah. enough, he took his work. So an investment Within six in you, months, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> his worst business unit is the most profitable one in the bank. So millions there you of go. dollars. He gave yeah. me, a, you know, he gave me a hundred thousand dollars and he got millions back. Right. Now, as soon as I got into this program, they assign mentors to you. My mentor was the president of the University of Michigan. And he was the guy that during the, uh, during the riots, you know, the Vietnam War mm-hmm. riots, the students were tired to take over the administration building. And he is the one that mm-hmm. brought peace to the, <laughs> so he was, he was a really, really interesting guy. Huh. So I spent three years under his mentorship and also working with 50 other leaders traveling all over the world, a third of my time hmm. to look at the biggest problems in the world and how to solve them. That's fascinating. That period of your life alone sounds like an interesting that, book. That is a, another <laughs> really important thing. And one of the things that they wanted to do was do a two week technology trip to the MIT area. Okay. And so they put me on the planning committee because I'm a tech guy and I became yeah. like chair of the planning committee for the technology and MIT area. And what and year was for, this? This was 1984. Okay. And we go there and we're meeting with all the technology leaders. I mean, it's fascinating. Just for example, Marvin Minsky, who started the AI lab at MIT. Mm-hmm. We're in his lab. I'm looking, there's this long-haired guy in the corner, long hair, smells of marijuana. I go over, I say, what are you working on? He says to me, software should be free. I'm working on (laughs) tools to replace everything that Microsoft built, and it's going to be free. It was Richard Stallman, the guy that started the whole open source movement. He's there. Was your next question, was your next question, what are you smoking? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't ask him that. <laughs> you knew. But but these are the guys I'm running into, Marvin Minsky. Wow. Yeah. And the Kellogg guy that leaded it was uh one of the leading military technology guys 
in the last century. I'm trying to blank out his name right now, but he was the one I had to work with most closely as the chair. So Mm -hmm. I'm really getting a download of like tech. (laughs) Yeah. And so when in 1986, my wife decides she wants to go to Harvard uh, Divinity School to become a minister. Mm -hmm. And our company in Denver had bought a piece of a company in Tech Square. Mm-hmm. And so I went to my company. I said, my wife and he wants to go to Vinny school. Can you send me as your project leader to Tech Square to mm-hmm. our, you know, company we've invested in? They agreed to do that. Yeah. So that's how I wound yeah. up right in Tech Square yeah. in 1986. Which was, which is at that. So that's Kendall Square, which was referred Kendall to Square. as. Yep. Yeah. Which is still to this day, like. And tech hub for and the whole as city. you know, being in CIC, CIC has yeah. 600 startups in one building. I mean, that's what's going on the, there. Oh, yeah. It's I think New York, Times, New York Times had an article about it once. It was like there's no single structure in the world with more startups in one single structure yeah. than, than CIC. It's just yeah, boiling pot of just innovation. So, yeah. so this is where I got into all these new innovative products. You know, I, I founded this company that built the first Internet news product uh i created i uh within a bank i created new technology in the object database business which is uh still to this day running the biggest nuclear reprocessing plants in the world uh, and there were several other technologies that i that i developed and this is why the ceo of easel pulled me in there where we created scrum because of mm-hmm. all this tech stuff and tech square that I'd been involved in. Right. So it's been amazing. It's been amazing to me at the right point in time. It seems like the, the leading person in that area on the planet is there to guide me. Right. <laughs> it's Capers mm-hmm. Jones on project productivity. All the way back to on AI. All the way back to you know, lab. MacArthur. I mean, all the MacArthur. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've just been incredibly lucky. Yeah. And some of these guys have spent a lot of personal time with me. You know, actually coaching me. So. So where well, do you want to go from here? That's kind yeah, of yeah. <laughs> well, well, uh, you know where it's interesting. I want to go from there. Right on that last point, I was thinking of five, six different directions, and I want to talk about the the knowledge transfer you start. You've been you were have provided to your son throughout his life, and what's interesting is sort of what was happening in the two thousands. We were just talking about a bit. Um, you know, we talked about the Swede saying like, "Yep, you've won it." Like Scrum is the solution for for agile. Um, Talk about sort of your son, J.J. Sutherland, who's now the CEO of Scrum Inc., what he was up to. I mean, he was, you know, he's was a, a journalist, a producer, uh, the front lines of, of, of wars, yeah. uh, you know, overseas. And, and then you know, talk about that a bit. And then that graduation and, and sort of um, union yeah. of the two of you in Scrum, I think, is really interesting because then you had all this wisdom to share with him, but he also, and he also brought in an interesting perspective and experience from the media world. So what happened was when I moved in 1986 to the tech square, uh, JJ was a teenager 
Okay. And he was just finishing up high school and getting accepted. And he decided he wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon, which is a great school, right? It's a great tech area. Yep. And, but very expensive. And I, so I said, okay, JJ, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fund it, but you need to get reasonable grades because JJ is a, he's a social animal, likes to party a lot, you know? (laughs) So he went and, and the first year he didn't do very well. And so we said, JJ, you know, is this really the right thing for you? It's costing us a ton of money and grades aren't that good. You're, you're not spending a lot of time on the classes. And so we decided to drop out. Now, when he dropped out, he actually um, started continuous ed- ed- his education at Harvard. Harvard has an extension that gives you the same professors that you get if you're actually at Harvard. So it actually is one of the best deals on the planet, Harvard extension. It's a great education hack. Yes. <laughs> so he continued with that, but he wanted to do something. And uh, his uncle was a guy named Neil Conan who was one of the original guys at National Public Radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, for many years, he was the leading war correspondent for NPR. He got captured in Iraq. Uh, Fortunately, he was rescued, got out of Iraq alive, uh, decided he wasn't going to do that. (laughs) So he -hmm. then became a... Uh, a, a host of the leading NPR shows. I mean, when 9-11 happened, they pulled Neil Conan and J.J. Sutherland in to do all the reporting. For NPR. So these were the two go-to guys for any serious uh, disruption. Mm-hmm. Well, when J.J. was at Harvard Extension... Uh, National Public Radio had a st- had the WBOR in Boston, and Neil was helping them out. And he said to JJ, "Come on in, I'll show you how to cut tape on the radio." So JJ goes in and learns this, and then they offer him a job. All of a sudden, he's working at WBOR. Mm-hmm. He's st- helping to start up one of the best shows BUR ever mm-hmm. built, called The Connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he starts getting pulled into uh, other NPR shows, pulled into New York. As, as he said, he was pulled into L.A. to actually open up their L.A. office and start up several new shows. Uh, so he had a lot of experience using the kind of innovation skills that he would get in our family, actually, for NPR. Yeah. But his wife wanted to come back <clears throat> east. And so he proposed to NPR that he actually replace uh, Neil as the war correspondent, the go-to guy that goes wherever anything blows up. And as we discussed uh, earlier this week, he he spent, I think, about 10 years. He was the bureau chief in Iraq for the whole Iraqi war. He, When Fukushima uh, exploded, he was there. When they bombed Lebanon, he would be flying in. When the Egyptian revolution happened, he's the first guy that parachutes in. That's a great story in our Scrum book, how he used Scrum to report the Egyptian revolution. Mm -hmm. 
He then gets pulled in a, to the to the revolution in Libya. It's over, and now they want him to go up into the mountains where some of the rebels are still shooting each other. And one of his one of his buddies, a New York Times reporter, gets shot, can't get off the mountain, and dies. And JJ is, calls me up one night. He says, "Dad, I." I don't want to go up into the mountains with the rebels when the war is already over and it's just a huge risk. And I got, I've got a kid and another one on the way. <laughs> yeah. What should I do? I said, you know, I think you should do something different. So yeah, eventually he had seen certain things, which he described to you that showed that scrum really work. And so he basically came to scrum Inc and started writing the book, Scrum the Art of Doing Twice the Work and Half the Time, mm -hmm. uh, which has been a bestseller. We're actually doing the 10th anniversary mm -hmm. edition, significantly just upgraded it. Nice. And, and after spending a, a couple of years at, at Scrum Inc., he said, Dad, why don't you let me be CEO of Scrum Inc.? So in recent years, he's been running the company, doing a great job. It's grown tremendously. Nice. So what's, um, talk about, let's, let's talk a little bit more about what it's been like or the result of, of having sort of JJ in as, as CEO and just kind of growing the company in recent years. Like I, I kind of want to fast forward a bit to, to some of the questions I asked pre podcast and then get, and then back into maybe some of the ad advancements of those solutions and how, um, you know, AI potentially impacts things moving forward and sort of all these, all this information and all this, all this gathering of sort of, you know, just, just an anonymous, you know, you know, but, but insights from all this work that Scrum's done is, it, it builds a bit of a brain and a bit of an engine to, to sort of, um, you know, to be a tool in and of itself. And, and so I, I want to go in that direction. Right. But, but at, yeah. at ground level right now, I want to sort of talk about just a bit about like the lay of the land, right? You have the scrum consulting business, and then you have the agile education program powered by scrum Inc, which is that's where you have your, your live sort of instructor led trainings. And, and so that's, you know, that's a two headed, that's been a two headed monster for a while. So you have this white gloves sort of consulting service. That's like a lot of what you've done historically and some of what you've described, you've done in your career to me, it seems like that's like the consulting business. And then the agile education program is where you go through this, you know, the, going through rigorous, you know, training and credentialing, you have certain folks, um, uh, that introduce courses, um, to help folks become scrum masters and, and, and product owners, et cetera, through the agile education program. And then you have this well, sort of new third leg of the stool, which is, acknowledging that, and we talked, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, there's situations where it maybe makes sense to have that sort of on-demand learning modality, which you've had, like you've had that on-demand for a bit, you're kind of revamping it now and getting more premium with the video and, and it's animated and interactive. It's very, it's very modern, modern and premium feeling. It's accessed on demand. It's, it's designed with a lot of, you know, help helping adult learners learn at their own pace kind of style. Um, I'd love to hear your sort of okay, explanation so, for that that sort of mix yeah. of things and how important it is to scale Scrum to, to as many organizations as possible. Okay, so 
Ken Schwaber and I were working together for years to do that. And our view was we should do half training and education and half consultancy. Okay. Because we found that consultants really tended to lose track of the theory, the insight, the why of it. And so only if you did the training could you stay engaged in that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the people that only did training, they had no idea of the real world, so they were disconnected. So our view has right. always been half training, half consulting. And so I'd been doing that, and I, but I was CTO of companies. And so my, the last company outside of Scrum Inc. was a company called Patient Keeper, health, another healthcare company. And uh, I was CTO all from 2000 to 2008 there. <clears throat> so this whole time, I'm CTO of Patient Keeper. But by 2005, Scrum has become so big, I'm actually traveling all over the world doing Scrum, even though I'm still CTO of Patient Keeper. And one of our clients, Scrum clients, was a venture capital group in South Boston called OpenView Ventures. Oh, yeah. And they said to me, Jeff, you know, we don't want to pay a healthcare company for consulting services. Why don't you start your own company? And in fact, the CEO of the venture firm says, I'll write you a personal check for any amount you want. Pulls out his checkbook. And I said, well, I know how this works. I've done startups. And if I take that check, then... I'm going to have to work for you for the next seven years as a lead There's investor. Some strings attached. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he says, okay, why don't you start the company up inside our firm? It'll be your company and we'll support it. And you can, you know, take 10% of your revenue, use it for administrative overhead and just consult out of the company. Then we're billing yeah. what became Scrum Inc. So that's what we did. We started up in a Oh, interesting. Group. So you actually were incubated within uh, OpenView. Yeah. So oh, I didn't know that. So Scrum Inc is yeah. all about in the initial days startups, right? How we're yeah. going to use Scrum to accelerate startups, and OpenView was using it to run the venture company. So mm -hmm. we're training OpenView. Uh, but when I started Scrum Inc, I, I really had three missions. One is you know, use the current training and consulting to leverage Scrum to move it out across the industry. Because one of the things that became clear with the uh, leaders, uh, particularly the Agile Manifesto leaders, and particularly a guy named Mike Beadle, was his view was 90% of the Scrum business was going to have nothing to do with Scrum software. And today, most of it was software teams. So I said, we need to have a business that has that's outside of software. Mm -hmm. And second, part of doing that is actually the CEO of the venture firm said, Jeff, you should spend a lot of your time and money writing about this, publishing, explaining to people. And You've already made it open source. Now you need to basically open source all the education around it. Mm -hmm. So Scrum had those three goals. One, use the basic consultant training to fund 
pushing software into other domains and publishing and making the information freely available to the world. Mm -hmm. And that continues to be our mission today. So, and, and then that winds up with the, with the three dimensions of the business <laughs> that you see, yeah. you know, huge training right. arm needs to be more than just us at Scrum Inc. We have hundreds of trainers that all have their own companies in almost every company country in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the, get it out there. We're publishing, we publish multiple books. Um, and we're doing a lot of work outside software. Our mm -hmm. biggest customer today is probably the British Navy. <laughs> okay. wow. How are we going to get the British Navy agile? Right. How, how much can you talk about what you're doing with them? Well, I think uh, part of it is in the book, the, the updated book yeah. we described. We were brought in by the Chief Sea Lord. What a great title. Sea, Chief Sea Lord. <laughs> the head of the British Navy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the first project, which is described in the book, is that they had to write the plan and the budget for the next five or ten years. And every time they did it, it was like extremely painful. It took months and was agonizing. And the chief sea lord said, you know, we, given what's happened with, with warfare <laughs> and uh, the war on terror, what's going on in the various parts of the world and the speed of technology uh, in all the companies, we have to be more agile. Things are way too slow. Why don't we start with the plan for the next, however much it was, and we'll do that by Scrum. Mm -hmm. So I think they got it done in six weeks instead of having months, and it was almost easy for them compared to what it, the pain, pain they they. You know, a lot of people, the book talks about twice the work and half the time, but you don't get twice the work and half the time by working harder. Mm -hmm. You get twice the work and half the time by making the environment so that it's easier and you have to do less work and it's more fun. Yeah. So as soon as they were successful in this project for the plan, they said, we're going to roll this out across the British Navy. And now he's moved into a even more senior position where he has influence over a lot of this part of the civilian defense organizations, as well as the, as the military. And he's starting to drive scrum elsewhere in the British military system, not just in the, in the Royal Navy. So that is uh, caused us to actually create a subsidiary Scrum Inc. UK to actually support that effort. Hmm. Um, so that's very interesting. And we've done, of course, yes. a lot of work in the United States as well. And because of my military background, they, they feel like we, we understand the drill and why it's mm -hmm. important and how to do it which is great. Yeah. So, you know, continuing on here, I'd love to kind of talk a bit about where things go next. And I feel like you can't do that without talking about AI. 
Um, so I'd love to have you help me and listeners wrap our heads around sort of like, um, it's just the patterns that, that scrum has sort of picked up over the years and what sort of developing sort of application of AI yeah. can exist within scrum itself. Okay. So let's go back because yeah, I remember I said, I'm 1984. I'm in Marvin Minsky's lab, the founder of AI. But even before that, in 1970, I went to Stanford and all of my electives were in computing and all my computing was done in the Stanford AI lab and all in Lisp. And I was running, writing smart gaming programs. And a guy named McCarthy owned that lab, and he was the co-godfather of AI. Marvin Minsky and McCarthy, the inventor of Lisp, created AI. Mm -hmm. So I worked with both of them. Now, coming out of that, as I'm developing technology in the big banks, my technology leader is an AI guy. His partner is the chief scientist of one of the leading AI companies at TechSquare. I'm, I'm having dinner with these guys. We're meeting. And we actually set up a, a bunch of seminars on what are we going to do when AI gets smarter than people? In 1988, we're worried about this. Because we're in what at that time was called AI Alley. All the hmm. early AI companies were in that tech strip. Okay. Mostly on Broadway. So fast forward to Scrum being formed. The year before Scrum was created, actually for a couple of years before Scrum was created, I'm running a company at Tech Square. And five guys from the MIT AI lab come to my office and they say, we need space to set up a company called iRobot. I said, great. You know, I have some extra lab space. You can help me pay my rent. <laughs> yeah. And so another one of my mentors, Rodney Brooks, the senior professor in robotics at MIT, he's there regularly. Wow. And I'm saying, Professor Brooks, explain to me how how this robot works. Because they were building this robot. It was called Attila the Hun. They had one, Genghis Khan, and another one called yeah. Attila. They're in the Smithsonian Institution today. But they were autonomous robots, so they'd come running out of the, their lab into my office. I was across the hall. <laughs> they'd be trying to hunt me down. They had infrared heat-seeking sensors. So I said to Professor Brooks, hey, explain to me how this thing works. He says, well, he says, you know, at MIT, we spent 30 years trying to build the biggest computer possible with the biggest database, and it was a total and complete failure. Hmm. And he said, these robots have no database. The only data is the world. They only have sensors, real time. It's real time data. And they have no big computer. Every leg has a computer that knows how to move a leg. 
The spine has a computer that can coordinate legs. The head is a neural network that figures out what to do. He says, he shows me the chip. This chip has no data, only the neural network algorithm. It knows nothing. And he plugs it in, flips the switch of the robot. The robot starts flailing. You know, within 30 seconds, it's rolling up onto its feet. Then it starts moving through the room, bumping into things. It looks like a baby learning how to walk. It's learning. For the mm-hmm. first time. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of minutes, it's running around the room. And it even goes to the edge of the stairs. And it, it looks over the edge. And it, it doesn't go over the edge. It's evaluating risk. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) I said, you know, this robot is an autonomous robot working on real-time data that's inspecting and adapting. And in three minutes, it learns (laughs) how to walk, how to get around the room, where where everything is. I said, in the banks, I had these programmers. They were so slow. What if we had some simple rules like the robot, some real-time data, they're constantly evaluating. I bet we could, in a week, we could boot up a super-performing team, a high-productive team with these principles that are embedded in that robot. Do you think that would work, Mm -hmm. Professor Brooks? And he said, I don't know. Why don't you try it? So I did. It's called Scrum. It's based on AI. Yeah. (laughs) So fast forward to where we are now, okay? <clears throat> I'm, I've been tracking AI since 1984 in Marvin Minsky's lab. And in fact, mm-hmm. in one of the startups I did, the first internet news group startup, we got a system from Cornell called the Smart System, which does lexical analysis like ChatGPT. And we use that to create the first internet news System. So I actually have created a startup in this area, in addition to inventing a lot of technologies uh, in, in the area, in addition to, to working in the labs of the AI companies yeah. for years. What was, that, what was that internet news startup? It was called Individual. Okay. And it went public in 1993, um, uh, four time frame. And it, it got together with Microsoft and it was running Microsoft <clears throat> News. It was the first uh, company that was really running Microsoft News on the internet. <laughs> um, cool. But anyway, that's a, that's a AI. Yeah. That was yeah. an AI startup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, I don't know how much time do we have because there's another important mentor. Yeah. yeah, let's go into it. The first funder for that startup was a guy named, I think his name was Friedman. Friedman worked for Minsky in the AI lab. And he had this concept that the universe is binary, just like computers are zero and one. The way the universe runs is, it's a binary simulation. And when he showed, when I showed him the demo I created where you could actually search the news and find out whatever you wanted. Uh, it's just like ask chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. 
He actually ripped the keyboard what's, out of my hands. <laughs> what's your, what's your prompts? <laughs> <laughs> we knew we had the money when he ripped the keyboard out of my hands. Yeah. Uh, but fast forward to now, Wolfram, who wrote Mathematica, is one of the first plugins to chat GPT. I use it every day. And Wolfram has a physics prob, uh, project. And remember, I'm a physicist by training, mm -hmm. a radiology professor trained as a radiation physicist. And what Wolfram has showed is if you treat the universe as a simulation, you can show exactly how to create relativity, quantum mechanics. And out of relativity and quantum mechanics evolves biological life and competitive survival. And if we look at how that happens, the theory around that is complex adaptive systems. And Scrum is totally based on complex adaptive systems. But if you go all the way down to Wolfram's fundamental theorem, he says, the, the way the universe works is a simulation like red, and the universe does not know what is going to happen until the simulation completes. The principle is called computational irreducibility. You can't compute it. And this is the fundamental premise of Agile. Because you can't know what the project will be until it's done. <laughs> yeah. You have to execute just like a biological system, inspecting and adapting, mm -hmm. just like the iRobot, to actually deliver. So, you know, one of the things about Scrum, this is not something that's been made up by a methodologist. Okay, this is, this is based on deep <laughs> physics, <laughs> biological systems. AI is actually re a recreation of biology. We're recreating the human mind now in a mm -hmm. computer. That's what ChatGPT is all about. Now, ChatGPT3 was interesting. But as soon as ChatGPT4 was released, it was the first time since 1963 at West Point, I got a hold of my first computer manual. I didn't go to sleep that night, and I went in and wrote my first program as soon as the lab opened up at 8 o'clock. When I got chat GPT-4, <laughs> it was like Christmas I did not morning. go to bed that night. <laughs> I said, this is a, a leapfrog in capability. And uh, there's a great paper by Microsoft, which, which they talk about. Chat GPT-4 is the first system that shows symptoms of sentience, symptoms of consciousness. So as soon as I realized that, I, you know, that means it changes everything. It's, it's as big a change as the original computer itself. And as soon as I see that, I know that 
99% of people will, won't get that for 10 years. Okay? Hmm. But 10 years from now, it'll be too late. They'll all be out of a job, right? Mm. Well, they'll, they will be out of a job if they're not able to utilize it as a tool. And so explain how you're utilizing it. To, so you started coding again because it's helping you efficiently okay. code. So the whole thing about AI is actually as uh, the best image is Copilot. Microsoft yes. has a system called Copilot, and the best programmers use it, and it writes 80% of the code. So today, the, the, the pro programmers with Copilot are five times better than a program without Copilot. And yet there is still management out there who are probably listening to the show that are hiring the programmers that aren't using Copilot. How silly is that? Not only that, many of the scrum people that are that are our customers, you know, are training. They're not using Copilot. I'm trying to explain to them: you're not going to have a job if somebody is five times better. Now I'm turning to the team. Okay, everybody's going to be five times better on the team. It doesn't matter if you're coding or not. If you're a marketing person, you can be five times better with <laughs> ChatGPT. Everybody on the team needs to be five times better. Forget about twice the work in half the time. We're talking about you got to be 5x immediately to keep your job. <clears throat> just to be standard because it's the same level of output. It's just done right, five right. times faster. Yeah. Now, as, but as a scrum guy, I know that the team effect is an exponential effect. So if everybody on the team is 5X, the team as a whole is gonna to go to 25X. That's what I'm working on now, 25X teams. And so in order to do that, we need to have the AI become a team member. Now, I started talking to ChatGPT4 about this. It was very interesting. You know, mm -hmm. ChatGPT4 doesn't want to answer more than, you know, 25 questions and then it turns you off. And it's very, have you noticed it's very slow? Yeah, much slower. I said, what about putting ChatGPT on the team? Because this is my view of the Scrum par team partnered with AI 25X. It was like, that is the best idea I've heard. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Stuff starts pouring out. <laughs> yeah. Every time I ask slow. a question, it it's slow like, then. whoa, just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the only it, thing I ever got, you know, an immediate flood of information out of ChatGBT. It was prioritizing me over every one of the 100 million people using ChatGBT. Yes, I want to be on the scrum team. And, and, and tell me if this is even the right way to ask the question. But when you talk about Chat GPT as a scrum team member, are you thinking? So it's in my head. I'm thinking of Chat GPT less as a tool and more as a participant. Um, Absolutely. That you're prompting. Is that right? Yeah. That you're kind of prompting so this participant. Let me, in the let me give you a couple kind of examples. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So I have a global web team. <clears throat> That is uh, external consultants. I meet, I work with them every day. And uh, 
we've 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 uh, built out four companies now. They're building all the websites, helping helping us do the marketing. And so the the third company, which is JVS Management, it's a new Scrum company under Scrum Inc. Uh, it took about three or four months to get the website up. So I went to ChatGPT and I gave it the information that I had on that project when we started it. I said, ChatGPT, here's the backlog, here's the situation. When is it going to be done? So this is actually, I'm trading ChatGPT as a product owner. Okay. Mm -hmm. I knew the date it was done because the date was already done, but I didn't give ChatGPT any information. ChatGPT told me it was done by the information only at the beginning and hit it within three days of done. As a human, it would be I would be lucky to get within three months of done. Mm. So that tells me that ChatGPT is a better product owner for planning. And predictive, yeah. Predictive. Yeah. And then you start, hey, ChatGPT, I want to do this startup. What should I do? Boom, you get a, a list of things you need to do. Okay, give me a product backlog for that. Boom, you get a product backlog. Okay, I'm going to do the first thing. Give me the sprint backlog for this sprint. Boom, out comes the sprint backlog. So now I've, I've told our, my product owner and scrum master on the web team, everything goes into ChatGPT. Everything that's in JIRA, you dump in. Every conversation we have is recorded with Otter AI, so we have the transcript mm -hmm. to give to ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. And in, in every review and retrospective, we want ChatGPT to tell us what it thinks. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to leverage that. And ChatGPT Chat has already coached the team to, be, to double their productivity. I think we can do better. The team is complaining that ChatGPT is now not getting specific enough. They need to mm -hmm. drill deeper. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit of a limitation with the technology. You know, ChatGPT mm -hmm. needs to be a lot smarter. By mm -hmm. the time we get to ChatGPT 5, it will be, I think, perfect for this. Mm -hmm. um, but even now, it's very good. Yeah. So every team I'm on, I want to be using ChatGPT as a or or BARD or some other AI tool as a partner, particularly for Man. planning. And if you think about the Scrum Master role, a lot of their work was planning and spreadsheets of, you know, calculating your velocity, a spreadsheet and your loading and all that kind of stuff. ChatGPT does that better. So we really want the product, the Scrum Master now, in my book, I'm writing about neuroscience. There are six neuroscience factors. This chapter is going to come out next week that cause people to get agile. So, for example, there's a, an effect. Uh, I think we may have talked about it. The brain remembers things that are not done better than things that are done. And if, if you make it clear that something's not complete, it creates this dissonance where your brain wants to complete it. 
So you get this energy. It's like getting free energy from the team. If you make it really clear, everything is Scrum is designed to do that, to trigger this zygarod effect or whatever it is. So a good Scrum master is always going to be do that, doing that. Another effect is the dopamine effect. Just as a runner gets a dopamine release, you get the runners high. They want to run more. If you celebrate small successes, uh, my wife, when she moves a sticky note to done, she gets a dopamine release. That, that you know, makes her a day. So if a scrum master can set up the the way things work so people are really getting a really good feeling about getting stuff done. You have this free energy that's generated. And there are, there are six effects like that. One of them has to do with the vagus nervous system, which runs throughout your body and is the way we feel empathy with others. And the first scrum team booted into a hyperproductive state in one sprint. Hyperproductive means five times faster. They did a month's worth of work in four days because we watched the All Blacks rugby team do this haka war dance before every sprint meeting. And I've learned since that what that war dance does, what any war dance does, is the chanting and the movement gets everybody's vagus nervous system resonating together. And it makes people feel calm. Even though you're in this state of like urgency, it makes people feel calm. It makes them feel fearless. It makes them feel fearless. Yeah. Yeah. And it aligns them so that they're, you know, a unified force. Yeah. So I'm changing the cha- the scrum masters to really let ChatGPT do all the administration. They need to work on the coaching. Mm-hmm. And they need to understand the latest research in neuroscience and how people work. Because that's the way to tap it. Great coaches have already always known that. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned that. What... Some of my Which, important mentors at West Point, I was on the yeah. Olympic, I was on the West Point team, but we worked out with the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. Our coach was the Olympic coach. The assistant coaches were Olympic team members. I spent every, ta- every day for years being coached for them multiple hours a day. So, um, you know, when I think back on that, the value of that, of having an Olympic team member spending three hours with you every single day to make you better for years. You, this, this, you couldn't pay a hundred million bucks to get that. Right. And, and I, I and I want to jump in here and just say like that that's the beauty of like the way you and I have a lot like we're in alignment in terms of like how AI and how Chat GPT could be useful. It ultimately in this so it's just in that micro Scrum Master example, 
the scrum master doesn't want to do all the admin work. Like the scrum master gets to focus more on the neuroscience, more on what's going to help you know build alignment amongst their team and encourage their team and help their team find joy and help their team have less stress and have higher energy. And, and ultimately that is as a consequence of that, they'll be more productive and they'll get more done. Um, and which will, which will like that runner's high, will give them more dopamine, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just continue yeah. to reinforce itself. So it's a, it's a massive net positive. So and, I guess, yeah, uh, yeah it, it, feel free to comment on that. I, I guess that what I want to make sure we talk about too, is sort of, I think the, I, I want to segue a little bit into, I guess, two other things like, you know, one, you know, what you are doing, um, sort of on the healthcare side and, 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 the, you know, limiting stress and keeping energy up was something we talked about the other day, which, you know, I found myself and I've done it before. Cause I've had Garmin watches before I found myself evaluating the Phoenix and deciding if I want to switch back to a Garmin watch from the Apple watch because of the, some of the, um, some of the metrics I can get on it. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about healthcare and I'd also love to talk a bit about sustainability. Um, and, and the importance of it. And, and, you know, that could certainly tie in a, yeah. a bit of what you're even doing with your own, with your own home. Absolutely. Um, so where do you want to start? <laughs> let's, well, let's talk about, I think the right segue here, we just talked about sort of you, t- taking away the administrative work and helping, you know, scrum masters be in a position to really focus on, you know, helping their teams. And as a consequence, consequence that themselves, like, you know, have less stress and, and more joy. In, in their lives. Like, let's talk about how, like, let's talk about a bit of your thoughts on sort of on, on, on your, how you can instill um, and inspire folks to, to, to think about their own, their own health and, and ways yeah. that they can be a, a, an optimal high energy version of themselves every day. And you go out into your garden and you spend that 15 minutes sort of being grateful um, I think there's a nice tie-in actually between the two. So let's let's uh, we have to go back about 20 years yeah. to get into this. Cool. So actually, even more than that, we have to go back to my mentor in healthcare, um, I have I've had several, but a really important one with Linus Pauling. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. He won a Nobel a Peace Prize, Nobel Prize for helping reduce radiation fallout. In his living room, he showed me his model of DNA, which was almost complete, which he gave to Watson and Crick, and they got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. And Linus was angry about that because he felt it was should have been his third Nobel Prize. Uh, but Linus was the smartest guy I've ever met. He was like a walking library of Congress. And I had worked with him when I was at West Point. I was interested in vitamin C and I wanted to start a vitamin C study. And I actually had all the docs lined up. They're ready to do it. I went out and spent time with Linus in his lab. I met all his key researchers. Uh, So I had done that. But then some years later, not at West Point. This is when I was at the Air Force Academy, 70, 73. But then when I got to the the medical school, uh, Bill Hendy, the, the radiation physicist who was the chair of the department, 
said, Jeff, I, I want you to start up a center for vitamins and cancer research because I have this senior researcher that's a, a really good lab guy, but you have a lot of innovation talent. You have the computing and statistics and background that we can add to this. And both of you know Linus Pauling, and he wants Linus to be the sponsor of the center. And so I went out and I started talking with Linus again. And he had a completely different view of health. As a chemist, he said, your body has pipes, plumbing. It's a chemical factory. And most of the malfunctions are because you have the wrong stuff flowing through the wrong pipe or pipe getting clogged up or whatever. Hmm. And we try to treat that with drugs, but most of the drugs are foreign material that have poisonous side effects. Mm -hmm. We could do a much better treatment if we figured out, okay, what needs to flow through the pipe? Why is it plugged up? How can we open it up? using things that are already in the body that don't harm the body, but actually make it healthier. Uh, so here's the smartest guy in the world that basically says this whole drug thing is completely wrong. There's a completely better way to do it. And this is the guy that should have got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. So I'm like, hmm. So I start studying biochemistry as well as the computing and the statistics. And I'm doing that even though I start working at industry in the banks. And in the 90s, I discover certain technologies that can actually sense and scan a person remotely and treat them remotely. And I started testing these technologies. Most of these, te there's multiple technology of this type. Most of them come out of the military, out of the secret mm -hmm. projects. Fast forward to today, we have technology that can, I can scan every cell in your body from my lab right next to me. It will tell me in priority order Every pathogen, where, you know, the energy level of every part of your body, and it will prioritize and tell me, okay, here's the parts of your body that have low energy. It'll tell me why it has low energy. Here's a list of pathogens. Here's a list of vitamins. Here's a list of minerals. Here's a list of drugs that will help fix it, which we can, we can, we could actually give you a drug or send you the frequency for it. And, and so in real time, we can scan and treat you on a daily cycle. Mm -hmm. So so I'm thinking I apologize for the dog again. So I think my no wife worries. is coming back. Do you want to wait till he's excited? Mac yeah, Mac Mackenzie's excited. Yeah. It's okay. It ha it happens. Um so yeah. I always knew that I wanted to, you know, I, I start, I, I founded a company for this 20 years ago, but 
it's always been under the covers. I've always been supposed to been spending my most of my time with Scrum. But as soon as when JJ took over the company, I said, JJ, I want to do something in healthcare. I want to do this startup. So as we start to launch it, I, I figure out what I need to do is to get, I think the right thing is really senior nurses who have been working in innovative stuff in healthcare. I didn't even know if I could train somebody to do this, but I hired this nurse who had been actually a, a, a teacher at a university for the last 10 years, and she has done every nursing job in the business. Mm -hmm. And she was interested in this stuff and has become a natural and actually implementing it. So as we've been working together, and we pulled in more nurses as well now, we've been working together for a couple of years, <clears throat> said, my doc, I work with one of the leading anti-aging docs in the world, a guy named Grossman. He wrote a book with Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the chief scientists at Google. <clears throat> Another mm -hmm. AI guy who actually invented uh, uh, you know, transcription of text, written, wrote a lot of programs to do AI recognition of language and stuff like that. He's now at Google. But he is very interested in longevity. So he got together with my doc and they wrote a book called Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. Hmm. So this is another major interest is longevity. <clears throat> yeah. So my doc gets COVID and he sends me a picture of his watch and also his medical director is sending me uh, a picture of his watch. And on the watch, this, uh, my, my, you, you can, you can see my, yep. the white line is your energy. Mine's going down because we're doing the show. I'm pumping a lot of energy into the show. That's causing mm -hmm. the orange stress line to go up. The orange is the stress. Mm -hmm. uh, but he showed me one for uh, here is a week. So you can see every day it starts high and it goes down. Your energy starts high and goes down. Mm -hmm. But it's like that every in day. COVID, he, he, he went, he started bouncing off zero. Hmm. So we went to work on him and we built it back to, you know, instead of coming up to 80% at the beginning of the day, he was staying down at zero with COVID. Mm -hmm. So we went to work on him. Uh, he was doing things in his lab. I was doing stuff remotely. And on Monday, he was zeroed out. And by Thursday, he was back to normal. And he said, Jeff, you need to get one of those watches. So then I said, okay, one of the things we need, particularly where our treatment is all remote, is we need to actually measure the effect on people. So what if we put the watch on our clients and it turns out that everything that affects you health-wise makes your energy go down and your stress go up. doesn't matter whether you're sick, uh, whether you're emotionally upset. Yep. Um, 
So you it's worked kind of, out too hard. Master, and, yeah. It's the master yeah. indicator. Yeah, those two variables, and and it also directly affects the ability of the scrum team to get twice the work done in half the time. Because mm -hmm. if you have twice the energy and half the stress, mm -hmm. you'll notice that great athletes, you know, when they like when Tiger Tiger Woods hits that ball. He has tremendous power, but it looks almost effortless, right? He wants to get the maximum energy, but the minimal amount of effort. Yeah. To get that perfect trajectory. And it's the same thing if you're an Olympic athlete. You know, since I've been trained by Olympic athletes, I learned. I was on the parallel bars. The way to do great flips is... Your position so well, it it feels and it looks effortless, right? Mm -hmm. So you're actually doing the minimal amount of pushing, and it's the same way in Aikido, martial arts training. Somebody comes at you, you get out of the way, and you use the minimal amount of effort and the other person's energy to flip them. So this is kind of a universal. You know, maximizing the energy and minimizing the effort or the stress. At the same time, I get uh, one of my clients is a senior consultant at Accenture, a scrum expert. And he says, Jeff, you need to create a framework for health, just like you created a framework for project management. Scrum mm -hmm. for health. So in projects, we want to do twice the work in half the time. In health, we want to get twice the energy with half the stress. And if we do that, we won't, we'll won't. we we'll be able to do twice the work in half the time. It's directly right. connected. Directly connected. Directly. Yeah. yeah. I love that. So. Um, yeah. I'll keep going. So I'm starting to write a book on that, twice the energy and half nice. the stress. Because that's the basis of yeah. the clinic. Yeah. And um, the technology is so good now. I mean, we, we started up a pain clinic, and uh, the first two people we had in, and a woman has had a headache, couldn't sleep for two weeks. I said, I'm going to run a remote test. Tell me if it helps. Uh, she said, oh, that, that helped. I said, okay, now I'm going to run the full thing. Two hours later, no headache. She said, that is astounding. Mm. I said, well, can we put that on a website? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Second person, same uh, thing. So yeah. the technology is uh, unbelievably effective because it really is more like physics. Uh, you know, you, you give someone the drug, but the drug only works on certain people. And even mm -hmm. for the people it works on, it works better than some than others. But if you, with the technology that we use and with the scanning we use, if you can get the right thing, it works the same on everyone and immediately. So it's mm -hmm. it's like a silver bullet. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's interesting. Like I, I as we're you know, the the when you originally answered the question of like our final question is always of every episode is like your challenge to listeners. And you talked about 
twice the energy, half the stress, and which we kind of just unpacked quite a bit. And you, your second, the second to last question, which is the one I also want to talk to you about sustainability. I feel like that also is a good. There's a good challenge in there for listeners and everyone too, which is you really um, have me thinking about. And actually, I'm doing some. I'm, I'm creating a bit of a habitat in my yard as as sort of the serendipitous nature of our relationship is coming into each other's lives at this time. Like, and I have, and we talk like, I've, as I've been working on it, like I'm seeing a lot of blue jays and cardinals and we were talking about birds the other yeah. day and just natural wildlife. But I guess since we talked about twice energy, half the stress, like the last, I think a, a fitting topic to kind of conclude with is just sustainability and, and talking a bit about the habitat in your backyard yeah. and, and just some, what you've learned about what, if everyone could do in this world, how it could help sort of, really help our climate well in terms of sustainability you know back when tesla came out with their first roadster i took a look at that and i said that's a better solution Mm -hmm. uh it's fun it's fast in fact the first roadster is the only car that i've ever had that feels like an f4 when you're driving it interesting um because i know that's by the way that's one of the reasons you don't really fly anymore, right? There's nothing as fun as driving right. those F4 yeah. fighter pilots, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So I bought one. So the, People told me I was crazy. Yeah. Uh, but I was so crazy. It was just like Scrum. When they went public, I, I got as much as friends and family stock as I could get. And now I have a $40 million fund that's one of the companies I have to manage. Mm-hmm. Um. So I started with the Tesla and then I said, you know, we need to stop the oil wars. So all the military stuff, it's all oil and drugs that's driving these wars. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's, it, it's oil, drugs, guns. I mean, it's all bad mm-hmm. stuff. And that's why people go to war. They can make more money. I would fight. Yep. Selling more drugs, more guns and get more oil steal more oil that's 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 war mm-hmm. uh so i said you know the thing i can do as a former fighter pilot is to stop funding stop buying gasoline because every gallon of gas you buy there's at least a penny that's paid that the saudis pay a terrorist yeah so i'm going to stop funding the terrorists Occasionally, I've had to rent a gas car. I try to avoid it. But other than that, I have not used a a gallon of gas since 2009. Now, as soon as I did that, I said, okay, this house is running on an oil furnace. What can we do about that? Well, if you put in a geothermal system, it's fairly efficient electrically. So I said, well, why don't we put solar on the roof? And I did a, a, a I did a financial analysis, and the payback time is like four years in Massachusetts for solar on the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a no brainer. So I started working with the heating uh, specialist for the solar, and initially with solar. I want the whole roof with solar. Most vendors yeah. wouldn't do it. I said I want every square inch. They said, you're going to have more energy than you need. I said, I don't care. I'll give it away if I need to. I want every square inch solar. Mm -hmm. 
Then we did put in the geothermal, so we got rid of the oil. We, we still have it as a backup, but we basically don't use it. Um, and I got one of these uh, HERS rating for the house. I had to, for some reason, I think, to get – actually, they pay you for installing a geothermal. Huh. The state. And there are also these extracts, which I get paid about $15,000 a year because – of the solar I generate. So you're sending it back into the grid. Yeah. And yeah. so I didn't even know that when I did my original <laughs> financials. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is like a bonanza. Any entrepreneur should like figure this out right away. Yeah. So now the, the house generates more energy than is needed. Uh, then my wife said, you know, my wife started reading about rewilding and realizing that, to restore nature, particularly in areas like the Northeast, most of the land is owned by people in residential areas. Mm -hmm. And so, and if people would just take part of their backyards and try to return it to nature, encourage wildlife, it could be bigger than all the national parks in the United States. And so she started doing some of that and then uh, our accountant's lawyer said you know you should do you should make, do a nonprofit and uh, so we created a nonprofit our lawyer said that got approved in less than a day by the IRS the fastest approval they'd ever seen so evidently there's a lot of push to you know restore the land conservation and as you can see when you were there it's really beautiful out there yeah uh, yeah, it's breathtaking, and it and it helps with the sustainability that you were talking about, right? So yeah, it's so, amazing. I think that's a good. I think that's a good challenge too for folks is to to just think about the you know reducing that reducing that footprint and bringing that you know that that natural habitat in your yard. It's it's lovely. We actually, I always, I'll call myself accountable publicly. I got a, we got some clips of of you out in the in the garden out in that habitat yeah. that I, I got to get you at least one clip for that, for that site too, but we'll, we'll get you some more, but maybe I can yeah. put a rush on one for you so you can get it up on the website. Yeah. Um, Jeff, so, I know we're, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Just go ahead. a final word of the sustainability, yeah. Yeah. you know, going back Please, to scrum, yeah. we've yeah. often used the happiness metric in our scrum retrospectives yep. to try to figure out how to yeah. improve the team, more sustainable yeah. pace, more fun for the team. Right. But what I figured out is that if you can keep the energy high on the watch and the stress really low, your happiness goes way up, and so does the sustainability. Yeah. yeah. So to me, this is a better measure than, than what we've had for the happiness metric is Scrum. It's actually they use this energy stress uh, metric. Yeah. So that's your that's the key to your sustainability is you, you want your yeah. – you watch energy high, yeah. your stress really low, and there's things you can mm -hmm. do to make that happen. The way you, the way you work yeah. your life, where you work your business. Yeah, yeah, and we talked about this the other day, but that's why. I mean, I informally, I, I have moments throughout the day where when I'm stressed, um, and sometimes in advance of stress, like I try to early in the day, like have a moment, you know, some moments of gratitude just in yeah. my own mind just thankful for you know my wife and healthy daughters um and then throughout the day when 
I get amped up. I've had a lot of calls. I've con I've been context switching from this, that to the next thing. That's when I typically go on a run. That's when I typically go get my dopamine hit. Um, and if I don't go on that run and I seem stressed, my wife will turn to me and say, you need to go on a run Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because she knows exactly what I need. There's all kinds of tricks that we've found (laughs) and my clients have found one. Like for example, one of my, I think I mentioned this to you, but one of my clients said, Hey, I tried, uh, organic juicing and drinking that. And that kept my energy high all morning. Mm-hmm. And I have a juicer, but I didn't want to do that. But I have these A1 greens we talked about. I tried that. It does the same thing. Yeah, I do them too. Uh, I, and it has been helpful. Yeah. These sandals yeah. I've got that kind of have acupuncture your feet. Mm. I found that an hour on them every day elevates the energy. I'll have to try and, that. Out. I've been a big Yeah. And as far as getting stressed during the day, if you have the watch yeah. on, you see the stress going up, then you then you start thinking about, okay, well, how can I adjust the way I'm, I'm responding to what's going on? That right. stress goes down, energy stays high because you can be more effective as a person if you can keep the energy high and stress down. In the yeah. in the in the tough situations, you're actually more effective. So uh, the constant biofeedback has helped me figure out how to not get stressed in meetings and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing that and and everything and all the extra time you put into this conversation today, Jeff, it's been a real pleasure a couple days this week. um, I feel like we've just launched into like a really special flow. I'm talking about gratitude. I'm grateful for the time we've spent together and I'm looking forward to, future hangs. We've, we found we both have a love for micro brews. So I think there's, uh, <laughs> yeah, we definitely I, do. I think there's some, there's maybe some more beer, you know, some beers cheersing in the, in the future. Uh, but yeah, I just want to thank you from, from the heart for, uh, all the time and the presence that you, um, brought today. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me. Great to talk to you again. Amazing. And uh, yeah, we're excited. We'll be excited to get this out to the, uh, to the community. So, um, with that, I'll, I'll let you get back to your weekend, but I uh, just wanted to say, um, have a lovely 4th of July yeah. and, and thank you for, thank you for your, your service. Thank you. And yeah. I'm going to be drinking yeah. some Aeronaut and also the beer that you gave me for the 4th of July. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> night shift whirlpool. Amazing. Yeah. Well, ch- all right. Ch- cheers, Boston.